welcome to the seventh episode in Linklater's competition litigation podcast series. I'm James Henner, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Alice Shaw. We'll be talking about disclosure and confidentiality in competition litigation. Unlike in some other jurisdictions, parties litigating in England are under strict rules to disclose what can often be a very large number of documents, the bulk of which generally takes place after the exchange of pleadings. This is actually one of the reasons why the UK has become such a popular forum for claimants in respect of competition claims, because especially where there are allegations of cartel-like behaviour, which is by its very nature secretive, disclosure gives claimants the chance to get their hands on documents from the defendants that they might otherwise not get to see. So, Alice, why don't you briefly outline the rules for disclosure under English law? Thanks, James. So the English courts have a pretty broad discretion to set the parameters of the documents that are required to be disclosed by each party. But traditionally, most major civil cases involve what we call standard disclosure, which means parties are required to disclose documents that they rely upon, which adversely affect their own case or which adversely affect another party's case. As you can expect, that's a lot of documents. And with the growth of electronic documents and emails, the costs and scale of disclosure have ballooned. To combat those rising costs, courts have increasingly taken a more tailored approach to disclosure requirements. That's right. Although it's interesting to note that the disclosure pilot scheme, which some listeners may be aware of in the commercial court, and seeks, which seeks to streamline disclosure and encourages parties to agree the appropriate scope of disclosure, doesn't actually apply to traditional competition claims, those being claims brought on the basis of EU or UK competition law. So standard disclosure is still very much the norm for most competition claims in the UK. Now that being said, in the High Court and the Competition Appeal Tribunal, it is now typical in large scale litigation for a court to manage the disclosure process quite closely in an effort to ensure that it remains proportionate. The result of this is that disclosure is often an iterative process and can take place in stages over a few years alongside other aspects of the litigation. This is worth bearing in mind as we talk through the usual process. It's also worth pointing out that regardless of the specific orders made, parties to litigation in the UK can only ever be required to disclose documents that are deemed within their control. Now, for a document to be within a party's control, they must either have or have had physical possession of that document or a right to obtain, inspect or take copies of it. Now that sounds like a no-brainer, but it can actually get a bit tricky to work out whether documents are within a party's control if, for example, they are held by a subsidiary or a third party. So let's say you've got your disclosure order specifying what needs to be disclosed in the proceedings. What are the next steps? Well, the disclosure exercise tends to start pretty soon after the parties have pleaded their case and had their first case, case management conference, but before the preparation of factual or expert evidence. As part of the disclosure exercise, parties will usually try to agree the scope of disclosure and any areas of disagreement will be decided by the court. Once an order has been hammered out specifying the scope of the disclosure, the parties will then extract the documents as specified, which will usually involve collecting data from sources such as emails and local drives of identified individuals who are likely to hold pertinent documents, usually within certain date ranges and subject to certain search terms. 
The documents extracted will then be reviewed to determine whether they are relevant and whether they might be withheld for reasons such as privilege. That's right. And I think it's important to note, particularly in the context of competition claims, that alongside the sort of standard documents that one might think of, it's also quite common to disclose data. And that's because economic expert evidence is commonly used in these cases to determine the impact of an alleged breach of competition law. Now, to conduct that sort of analysis, economic experts do, of course, require very large volumes of economic data. Thanks, James. As all of this suggests, practically, disclosure is usually a very involved and often expensive process which often requires the manual review of hundreds of thousands of documents. And it's quite common in large scale cases to enlist the help of external e-discovery providers and third party review resources, whether that be specialist outfits who conduct the manual review at relatively low prices or outfits who support the process by providing automated review services. As to the latter offering, legal tech companies and firms are increasingly adopting new methods to streamline the process. For example, at Linklaters, we actually have an in-house dedicated e-discovery team who manage the process from upload through to production using an e-discovery platform called Servient. This cloud-based platform has advanced predictive coding algorithms that can be used instead of search terms to help optimize the review process, making it faster, more efficient, and more accurate. And once you've given disclosure in accordance with the provided timetable, the fun certainly doesn't stop there. First, you need to review the documents received from the other side to understand their impact on the case. Second, parties can at any time apply for what we call specific disclosure of documents which they think another party holds that relate to a uh, relevant issue. Third, a party's disclosure duties are continuous. So if new documents come to light during the proceedings, they must also be disclosed. All in all, disclosure is a key part of the process in competition litigation claims, and it's an exercise to be taken seriously by all involved. Moving on to a related topic, one thing that can be quite contentious in com competition litigation is the confidentiality of the information disclosed, which is often commercially very sensitive and being exchanged between commercial counterparties and competitors. Yes, parties cannot withhold documents on the basis of confidentiality, and this has been made clear repeatedly by the courts, most recently by the Court of Appeal in Hancock and Promontoria last year. So what sort of protection would be available to these parties? Well, under the civil procedure rules, parties are generally prohibited from using documents disclosed to them in one set of proceedings for any other purpose. That's provided that that information hasn't been read out in court or has otherwise become public. However, as you can imagine, many companies don't draw sufficient comfort from those standard provisions. So in those circumstances, and in the vast majority of competition litigations, parties often apply for specific confidentiality orders. Do you want to talk through those briefly? Sure. Now, these are orders made by the court, and they usually restrict the circulation of information to specific persons, often by establishing what we call confidentiality rings. And there are, often, there are often different layers of confidentiality rings for use, depending on the level of sensitivity of a given document. Usually, the disclosing party can designate which information is confidential, and that information will then only be available to people within the relevant confidentiality ring. And those people will usually have given an undertaking to the court, stating that they will not disclose the confidential information they receive. 
Now, the terms of the orders in this regard can be quite restrictive. And at the most inner confidentiality ring, it's common for that to, um, to permit disclosure only to external advisors. We should say that, in general, the courts don't like restricting the use or disclosure of documents in this way unless there is a clear justification for doing so. They tend to be particularly reluctant to make orders restricting disclosure only to advisors. In fact, in the recent decision in One Plus Mitsubishi, the Court of Appeal made it clear that in cases where advisor-only orders are granted, the owner should be squarely on the party applying for an order to justify why these restrictions are necessary and that the party should be careful not to over-designate confidential material. That's right, Alice. Um, now, OnePlus was an intellectual property case, which is, of course, another area in which confidentiality of information disclosed is paramount. We're recently involved uh, in a hearing in which the court considered whether OnePlus should be extended to competition claims. Now, the implications of that would have been that a party wishing to designate a document as confidential would have borne the onus of justifying that before a court if needs be, rather than the receiving party bearing the onus of challenging the designation of documents as confidential, which is what has traditionally happened in competition claims. Now, interestingly, the court declined to extend OnePlus in this way in the specific circumstances of that hearing, but it left the door open to doing so in future. So this is an area in which uh, confidentiality rings may well develop in competition claims. Thanks, James. One to watch out for. I think there's a valuable health warning in all of this for parties to competition litigation, that confidentiality can be a rather thorny topic, both between parties and before the courts. Indeed. Now that brings us to the end of our seventh episode. Thank you to all of you for listening. If you're interested in finding out more, you'll find lots of helpful resources on competition litigation on the Linklater's website. Our next podcast will be on factual and expert evidence in the competition arena, where we'll be joined by Oliver Latham, an economist from Charles River Associates. Finally, if you would like to get in touch with one of the team, then please do reach out to any one of us. Our details are on the Linklater's website. Mm-hmm.